All right, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Olsher hanging out with the lovely Mary Goulet. Hello, Hello Mary there. Goulet. Hi. Richie Ote is off in speaking land. White Wade's got it under control in the studio. Kelly's got it under control back at headquarters. And here on Beyond Eight Figures, we do sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited for more than $10 million or currently run businesses that gross more than $10 million annually and get to the bottom of how they started and scaled And in some cases. And in this case today exited from that business. So super excited for today's guest and super excited for all the wonderful feedback that we've been getting from you guys. So thank you. Really, thank you for that. And uh, keep up the the ratings and the reviews and the subscribings. And if you haven't done one of the above, well, now's the time. Please do so. And we'd love to hear from you. And of course, uh, we appreciate those who have shared the show with their friends and listen to the show at work and so on. I tell people all the time. It's crazy. To listen. It's that, such that, a, every time we do one of these interviews at the end, we're like, dang, what have you done with your life? What have you done with your life? <laughs> and it's so interesting because on reinvention radio, we just had a, a phenomenal woman join us Judy Robinette, uh, who wrote a book called crack the funding code, how investors think and what they need to hear to fund your startup. Uh, that episode is called Reinventing Funding, and that'll be released soon enough. By the time you guys hear That's this, it will have been released. Star that one. Star that one, because it really plays so well into what we're going to be talking about here today with our guest, Michael Houlihan. And I, I got to tell you, yeah, there's there's certain brands that are iconic in, in industry. Mm-hmm. And if you know wine, you know this brand uh, because it has uh, literally been everywhere in any store. You, you, I mean, even in the, the corner stores and the big BevMos of the world and so on, you, you will see barefoot wine. And we're really honored and privileged to have Michael Houlihan on today, uh, one of the founders here of Barefoot Wine. Michael, you with us? I am with you. How are you doing? Are you alone or are you also with Bonnie? I want to make sure I don't uh, leave anybody out there. No, it's just me today. Okay. <laughs> just want to make sure I address anybody who's in the room there. So, all right. So, Michael Houlihan, uh, first and foremost, welcome to Beyond Eight Figures. Really honored that you decided to, to spend some time with us here today. Uh, just so we can get this off of the table, do you currently run a business that grosses more than $10 million or did you exit for more than $10 million with Barefoot or both? Both. Both. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And and I know you're not able to share the specifics of the exit uh, with Barefoot, but uh, is it safe to say that that was a nine plus figure exit? Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> wow. Right. Yeah. Okay. Because at the time, what were you doing in terms of cases or however, what the, the, I've got some experience in the liquor industry. Uh, so just give us an understanding of, of the volume in, in terms of the number of cases or whatever terminology you want to use at the time of the exit of Barefoot. So basically, uh, it's, uh, we were doing about 600,000 cases at the time. Uh, and we were in all 50 states and in 28 foreign countries and okay. all the military bases around the world. Okay, so 600,000 cases annually? That's correct. Across all of the varietals? That's correct. Okay, and so where did that put you on the spectrum at the time as it compared to 
uh, well, Gallo ended up buying you. So um, as, as it compares to like a Sutter Home or... We were, we were in the top 20. So of all brands, you were in the top 20. And give us an understanding like this. So the top brand, top selling brand at the time, was that a Sutter Home? Uh, the top selling brand at the time was Yellowtail. Mm. It's not It's not just brand. It's the brand at our price point, you have to remember. Yes. Uh, you know, we sold uh, Tuesday night wine. Uh, mostly for a mom with two and a half kids uh, shopping for groceries, looking for a staple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a lot different than a Saturday night uh, vintage dated uh, vineyard designated wine. I gotcha. Yep. Yeah. And so, were you were you actually growing this, or were you just taking remnant grapes from other vineyards, or how? What was the what was the thinking going in when you were creating Barefoot? Well, we. We supplied our program with grapes that were grown uh, for us on contract. Yes. We also bought grapes from uh, vintners and had them crushed. And then we also uh, bought some bulk wine and we blended it into the other two types of sourcing. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I would say, you know, you have to remember how we got started in this. We got started really by accident. Um, And it was because Bonnie had a client, she was doing office work, and she had a client who was owed $300,000 worth of, uh, of, of grapes that were sold to a winery that had just declared bankruptcy. And I just met Bonnie, and she said, well, why don't you go over there and see what you can do? Mm-hmm. And I thought, gee, I just met this gal, and she's already got me collecting 300 large. <laughs> I wonder where this relationship is going to go. <laughs> and so I went over there, and the only thing I could get was uh, goods and services from the winery. So they were able to give me bulk wine and bottling services instead of the 300000 but the farmer didn't want to take over a company that would market that himself because he was not only a farmer but a winemaker. Mm-hmm. And he probably knew more than we did about what was involved in actually marketing wine. It's not as romantic as making it, believe me. Mm-hmm. And so um, he bowed out and we said, okay, we'll take over the debt and uh, we'll market the wine and we'll build a label and we'll sell it and we'll pay everybody off. How hard could that be? How long could that take? Mm-hmm. So um, let's, so that's the embryonic stages of, of the story. Did that's you, right. how, how old were you at that point? <laughs> I was uh, about uh, 39. Okay. So you had experience then for a couple of decades in the workforce. What, what else were you doing Prior, prior then, that. prior to then, this this opportunity with Bonnie coming up. Well, I had worked as a business consultant, and uh, before that, I had worked for the uh, federal government in urban renewal projects. And part of what I did was help move businesses out of harm's way, so that they could continue being in business. And in the process, I learned a lot about business. I learned about, you know, uh, procedures. Uh, you know, policies, checklists, all this stuff, you know, financing, everything. Mm-hmm. And then I was, then I left the federal government uh, and went to work as a consultant. And I was helping businesses get federal government loans and uh, expand their businesses with what I learned working for the Fed. And then I moved to Sonoma County 
And naturally, my clients turned out to be wine country clients. They were people that were in the wine business. Uh, many of them were growers. And she had a grower as a client, too. And then we met. And that's how we got exposed to this opportunity. You know, people say, you know, follow your passion. Well, we followed our opportunity mm-hmm. passionately. Mm-hmm. So it's a little different. It's like you, you play the cards you're dealt. Mm-hmm. So, so, so what we did was we had to come up with a label and we had to come up with a marketing program and we had to come up with a distribution program. So hold and, on, hold on one second, Michael. So just so just so I'm clear, so you're you're in the middle of doing this other work, and this opportunity kind of falls mm-hmm. into your lap. You're kind of pulled into it to see, hey, you know, what can you do here? Did you know right away that this is something that was going to replace the other work that you were doing? Like, did you feel that in your gut? Oh no, I I grossly and so did Bonnie. We grossly underestimated the amount of time, work, and energy and money that was involved and also the learning curve. Uh, we were underfinanced and underknowledged to take on something like this. But because we were, those two things actually worked to our advantage because we weren't highly financed, we were forced to be resourceful. Mm-hmm. And by being resourceful, we developed brand new ways of getting the word out that the industry had never seen. And we learned different ways of marketing wine products and other products that had never been done before. So if we had been from the wine industry, we certainly would have had a wine industry bent about our approach. And Barefoot was anything but wine industry standard. At the time, it was the most radical wine brand ever conceived. Mm -hmm. So what year was that, that the $300,000 issue? That was in 86. 86. Okay, so pre-internet. So getting the word out is all going to be, you know, feet boots on the ground, if you will. But uh, I'm I'm trying to understand the the goal was let's just see if we can't recoup 300K and and try to get that money back in the door. Exactly. But why did it turn into a business after that? Like what what happened? So so you got out there and 300K at that point probably bought you. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, maybe it cost you two bucks a bottle all in something like that. I mean, that's, it's well, it, 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 it enabled us to have about 18,000 cases, 18,000 cases. And so there's 12 in and, a case. And so, he, yeah. so here we are here, here we are with 18,000 cases and uh, we're trying to sell it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this is what we tell our clients today. Do not underestimate the cost of sales. Now everybody knows what the costs of goods are, but when we got into it, we found out that the cost of sales were much higher than we ever thought. Mm-hmm. We thought maybe a dollar or two a case. It was more like five to seven dollars a case. Sure, you know, just just to sell it. Well, and and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but given the three tier system in beverage alcohol, and uh, if you're listening to Beyond Eight Figures for the first time here. Uh, having had experience in the liquor industry for years and currently owning and being involved with liquor.com, I'm, I'm pretty darn familiar with it. But if you were, and just correct me if I'm wrong here, but if you were trying to get your 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 foot in the door there to get into retail, because the internet wasn't an option to be able to sell direct, it's really not an option even now in a lot of ways, but you would have to get the wholesale level to buy off on this, no? No, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you totally need to go through the three-tier system. At first, um, 
we were, you know, in California, unlike other states, it's one of the few states where a producer can sell directly to a retailer. And we were doing that, but, you know, we were getting paid last before the distributors, so we had a big collection problem. And also, you know, there was the delivery problem and everything else. This is the problem that most people run into. They have a good idea and they go out there and they underestimate the distribution system. Mm -hmm. And uh, anytime you're dealing with a product that weighs as much as wine, which is like $35 or excuse me, 35 pounds to a, to a case, yeah. uh, you're really talking about trucks. And now we're talking about warehousing that is air conditioned. So it's a very specialized business. So we were we were just dumbstruck with uh, the complexity of it, the laws and everything that you're familiar with. If you're in the wine industry, there's sure. a lot of uh, arcane laws. Every state has their own laws. Um, it's amazing. But, uh, you know, let, let, let that uh, be set aside and, and let's just focus on you know, what our big challenge was, which is, as you pointed out, getting into distribution. Yeah. And um, so what we did is the first thing we did is we went to the largest buyer of wine at the time, which was Lucky Stores, believe it or not, mm. of California. They went out of business and came back into business. But when they were in business the first time, they were pretty big. You know, they had about 340 stores or something, northern and southern California, went to the buyer uh, the buyer, you know, asked the buyer what he want, told him that, you know, hey, we've got all this bulk wine, uh, you know, how do you want it? And uh, he said, well, he says, there's an opportunity for 1.5 liters, you know, it's got to be a label that, you know, she can remember and identify with. Mm -hmm. uh, the name should be the same as the logo. It's a supermarket product. It's going to compete with Robert Mondavi Red and White and just a few others, but we've got room in the 1.5s. So we put the package together. We came up with the Barefoot, which is the same name as the logo, mm -hmm. and it's visible from four feet away and everything else that he told us it was worth a fortune. Um, and the key here is to be sure to ask before you do. And so we asked him what he wanted, came in and said, here it is. And he says, I can't buy that. And I said, well, why? And he says, well... Nobody's ever heard of anything called barefoot. It won't sell. Are you going to spend a million dollars in advertising? And so that's when I realized that we were going to have a hard time with the quick sale, the idea that we would sell it to, you know, a, a chain store, make the money, pay off the grower, and be down the road on our next venture. Mm -hmm. That's when we realized that we were going to have to sell it to every mom and pop in the broad market, and these are little stores, right, to get a household name. Well, you know, they were concerned, too. They said, well, we're not going to put it in unless it sells in 90 days. And so, you know, after about 40 or 50 days, we get a telephone call from left field from a guy in San Francisco who's trying to raise money for a kids after school park. And he says, oh, you guys are wealthy. You're you're a big winery. Uh, you know, all I need is $50,000 for this kids after school park. And we said, well, you got the right number because we don't have that kind mm -hmm. of money. At the time, we didn't. Mm -hmm. I said, but we can give you wine, and maybe that can help at your fundraiser. You know, maybe some people will be loosened up. They'll write a bigger check. Or you can, you know, you can auction off the wine, and, and uh, perhaps you can buy some swings and slides and sandboxes. And so, you know, he laughed, and then he took the wine, and we didn't hear from him again. But we noticed that the, the stores, the mama-papas, 
in his neighborhood had all reordered barefoot two or three times. Hmm. And we thought, hmm, this is interesting. I wonder if this would work in another neighborhood. So we tried it out in the Pacific Heights neighborhood, and they were trying to clean up a creek in that neighborhood. And so we donated the wine for their fundraiser. And this time we got smart about it and told them that, you know, the wine had to be out. People had to see the label. And, you know, we had a few other requirements and they agreed. And the next thing you know, sales started taking off in that neighborhood. Hmm. And so we thought, gee, you know, this is pretty cool. Let's try this all over the state of California. So we did. This is taking like a year or two. So we try it all over the state. We, we support the Surf Riders Association in Southern California, you know, the California State Parks Association, all these different nonprofits. And the members of the nonprofits now have a social reason to buy our product. They've been exposed to it in their fundraisers, yeah. and they know where it is in the stores because by this time we're putting lists in front of them of where they can buy it. Yeah, Jay, so this Jay is, Conrad Levinson would have been really proud of you at that point, right? I'm sure you... Oh, yeah, 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 there's, yeah that's very true. Yeah, so that's guerrilla marketing at its best. Yeah. Exactly. So this goes on for about two years, and we go back to Lucky's, and Lucky's takes it. They say, yes, you know, this, this brand is known throughout the state. We're going to take it. Mm-hmm. And we thought, well, you know, I guess our problems are over. But no, now we had to deal with what it's like to actually merchandise a large supermarket. Mm-hmm. Now, it wasn't like we were Ian J. Gallo with, you know, thousands of uh, merchandisers. You know, we were just a little operation and, you know, with about five or six people. And so we had to go into the stores every week to make sure our signs were up, to make sure that uh, they were the products were priced right, that they were delivered right, that the SKUs were entered into the software right, that they scanned right. And all this time, things are changing. You know, the, the whole technological revolution is happening. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, it gets down to scans, and it gets down to buyers who are just looking at a screen and talking to you about your products as if they sold or not sold. They don't say, oh, well, this one didn't sell because it was in the back room and our guys never broke it out and put it on the shelf. They just say your product didn't sell. All right, hold on, time out. We got to, I need to go back a minute. So we've got the 16,000 cases. We are now doing the guerrilla marketing. We're going in, you don't have distribution, you're not selling this at retail, but you have the wine and you didn't have to pay for the wine because, well, that was the exchange of the $300,000 debt. We don't need to get into the details on, on that, but you, you got that. You got the 16,000 cases, you're going in. Are, are we, and it's still just you and Bonnie, right, doing and all two, of this? And two other people, two other people by this time. So you, so you did hire two other people to even to help you with the nonprofit donation, that, that, that whole, uh, just I don't want to call it a scheme, but, you know, that, that, that whole process there? Well, the, 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 we, we called it Worthy Cause Marketing. It's an actual marketing program that we now teach. Okay. But yes, we had two people, and they weren't helping us with the where they cause marketing. They were helping keeping our products on the shelves because we couldn't get the distributors' sales reps to reorder the product. Mm-hmm. So our guys had to go in and reorder the products for them. So did you did you also then reorder the wine at some point, or were you still working off of the same sixteen thousand cases with the first two employees? Oh, no, we reordered it several times. We turned it over. What, what happened was 
that we weren't making profits at all. As a matter of fact, it was costing us so much that we were using up in money part of the $300,000 worth of debt just to market what we had sold. Mm-hmm. So did you did you raise any outside capital or did you have some cash and, and Bonnie had some cash and, and you infused that into the business to carry it through the first two employees? Well, what we did was we we got a pretty good relationship with a bank and we do, and we sought for and achieved a line of credit a zero balance line of credit so basically did, what did was you have happening, to put up collateral or did you put up the wine oh yeah, collateral? yeah the, the whole thing works on collateral yes you have to give them you have to give them a warehouseman's lien and all that but basically what's going on here is the bank is fronting you money based on your accounts receivable at a certain percentage. In it's, those days, it was 75%. Yeah, so, so you, they it's just factoring a, then. Yeah, it's factoring. It yeah, is. Yeah. And you pay an interest rate, and you have a zero balance, so you only pay interest when you need it. Mm-hmm. So that helped us with our cash flow tremendously. Mm-hmm. And so, um, okay, yeah. so again, we're sitting on the 16,000 cases. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a lot of cases to move through cause-worthy marketing, if you will. So at some point... You gained traction in retail. Did you find, did you then find, once the moms and the pops started picking this up, I mean, again, you were going straight through to retail, or did you find a distributor to to pick it up? So for, as a point of clarification, we didn't sell the wine to nonprofits. What we did is we exposed the wine to nonprofits. We let them taste the wine and we told the members of the nonprofits at their fundraisers where those stores were that were in their neighborhood, that when the nonprofit fundraiser was over, they could go and buy our products. And that's what fueled the purchases in the Mama Papas when we started. And that's what built the Barefoot brand in California. Mm, okay. So the members, the members knew the wine, and they became you know, today it's called networking. We actually took advantage of an existing network. It's almost like network marketing back in the day, so to it's, speak. Yeah, It is very much like network marketing. But there was an element of risk that it wouldn't pay off. That Absolutely. You, yeah, you because you had to move people from the event, the Causeworthy event, to a local mom-and-pop chain or store mm-hmm. to buy that exact product. Exactly. Wow. So so you might say we were hoping that they would buy it. But the fact is, they did. We didn't do it right to start with. We learned from our mistakes. But by the time we'd been into it for about a year, we knew how to mitigate those odds and risks. Mm-hmm. So let, let's move through then towards what, what we might call the, the tipping point or, or when you began to, to scale here a bit. So you've got two employees, and they're mostly helping you in terms of distribution, just getting this on shelves and keeping it front and center. Where, where were you at case sales-wise at that point when you brought in those first two people? Oh, probably under 100,000. Under a hundred thousand, and it, and up until that point, you and Bonnie were really just doing all the hustling, you know, just just getting on the streets and and getting out there in front of the distributors and the retailers and trying to get in as many uh, hands and and miles as you could. 
uh, Bonnie was doing was overseeing the production, and I was overseeing the sales. Mm-hmm. And, and so did Bonnie leave whatever that job was that she had, where huh. she brought you in, or, or did she keep the day oh, yeah. job? No, she did. Well, both of us, both of us realized that we had to quit our our day jobs. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, when we started to realize the scale of what we had bitten off. And how long it was going to take to chew? We got sober about that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So it was. So it's, I mean, you were the beneficiaries of really good timing as well. I mean, how how did timing play into this? I mean, look, timing. You know, fortunes are made when timing meets opportunity, and you were and you took advantage of both. So, how do you think timing played into the success of the brand? Well, there, the wineries were not addressing. The larger market, they were all competing for a smaller slice of the larger market. The larger market was uh, female buyers. They were competing mostly for male buyers. Most of the wine buyers in the supermarkets were male. Mm. Most of the the wine representatives who worked for the distributors were male. Mm -hmm. All the distributors were run by males. There was no women in the system. And yet, 78% of the volume of wine was being bought by women, but it was not being bought at the higher price points. And it was, it was being bought at the lower price points and it was being bought as a staple. Mm -hmm. It was being bought as this is my everyday drinking wine. And so that was timing. We were Johnny on the spot offering her something that she wanted at a time when she was looking for it. And also addressing her specifically mm-hmm. and engaging her and finding out, for instance, you know, how should it taste? Uh, what do you think of the pricing? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let me, let me let me just try to, to understand things here. When when did you then bring on? Um, for lack of a better term here, professional help in terms of a, a lettered savior, a CMO, a CTO, a CFO, any of those sort of people? Like what What was that first real hire outside of the two that were just kind of helping? I would say we realized that we needed a, a serious cost accountant. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not just a books accountant. This is a person who can tell you here's what it's going to cost you to sell a bottle of wine in New Jersey. Here's what it's going to cost you to sell that same bottle of wine in South Carolina. Now, that's a cost accountant. That's a person who looks at the cost of things and how they reflect on your strategy for expansion. And so when we got that person on board, we believe me, he pretty much ran the strategy with numbers about what states we should go into first, second, and third, and why. As a matter of fact, we didn't go into New York until the end. And it's and for good reason. It's it's the most expensive place to sell wine in the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and just so I'm clear here, at any point, did you raise outside capital or did you use the sales that you were uh, that you were able to secure as a way to then go and and factor this uh, against the line of credit to be able to invest in marketing and personnel and so on? Did, Did you ever raise outside capital at all? Oh, yes, you did. So at what point did you did you raise outside capital and how much did you raise and what did you have to give up for that? Well, 
we started off with short-term loans from our bank okay. that, you know, would tie up our, our inventories. And uh, we used those and we paid them off. And those were like 90-day short notes. And we kept that going on for like two years. Mm. And then we realized that we didn't need to do that anymore because our volume was so great that we could survive and grow on a line of credit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's and that and that made a big difference. The other thing we did too is we engaged our glass company. You know, when you're selling wine at the five ninety nine price point, your most expensive thing is glass corks, foils, and labels. Sure. In other words, packaging costs more than the wine. Yeah. And so if you have a packaging company who has agreed to work with you and they become a strategic ally then they can give you a type of funding that is really different, really radical, but it's called, um, you know, unlimited credit with no interest Hmm. because they think that they have an interest in you. They say, wow, if Barefoot starts selling big, we'll be selling big to Barefoot. So So the manufacturer, so to speak, actually ended up becoming a banking partner of sorts? Yes, but I wouldn't use those. That's not the formal way, but very informally, the answer is yes. Hmm. In other words, they became a strategic ally. So what what did that structure look like? Because it's a really interesting approach. Like, I would never have thought of that at all. I mean, in terms of going to the manufacturer, because obviously, as you grow, <clears throat> they grow. And, and my God, it's a win-win. So what, what did that structure, again, look like? Well, it was more of a process than a structure, but here's how it looked. The first thing that happened was we, we, uh, they they gave us goods on 30 days, <clears throat> and uh, we paid our bill. Yeah. And they gave us goods on 30 days, and we paid our bill. And then one time we couldn't pay our bill, and we called them up and we said, "Hey, you know that fifty thousand dollars that's due." You know, 30 days from now, we just looked at our cash flow report, and guess what? We can't cover it. But we want to give you a warning. We're giving you a heads up because we know you use that money to pay your own bills. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we want to work with you. And we have three checks coming in and they're earmarked for you. At that point, the glass company said, you know, you're the kind of customer we're looking for. No one has ever called us and told us they were going to miss a payment. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, they extended our credit. They said, don't worry about your credit. We'll just extend it. And so then we started to meet with them. We met with them like almost every quarter. And we said, here's our plans. This is what we want to do. Here's, here's our big challenges. These are the stores we want to take on. This is the size of the glass order you can expect if we're successful. And ultimately, we had a big breakthrough with a company uh, in Florida, Publix uh, grocery store in yeah. Florida with 600 stores. And they said, yeah, we're going to take you in barefoot. We're going to put it in the stores. And we thought, well, good news, bad news. The good news is we're in. The bad news is we can't afford the glass. Mm. How are we going to do this? Are we going to go raise money? Are we going to go to a VC? What are we going to do? And so we decided to go back to the glass company and just lay it on them and say, look, guys, this is a big opportunity, but we can't do it alone. And they decided yeah. to help us make it happen. Yeah. So 
And that so was, inter was in interest-free as well, or did they end up charging you some well, juice to carry? Well, we actually paid it back before the interest. It was interest-free for six months, mm -hmm. but we actually paid it back before six months. Hmm. How, and, and also, they were happy to have the accounts receivable because they had a line of credit as well. Yeah, they could factor that so, too, for sure. So they could factor that, yeah. Interesting. So let's let's kind of go through the the scale phase then and this sounds like it may have been the the start of the true scale what so you to get from i mean and having again a little bit of experience in the the world of beverage alcohol i can tell you that the majority of brands will never reach 100,000 cases so I mean, by the time you got to 100,000 cases, you were already doing fairly well, but it sounds like you were also operating pretty lean and mean. I mean, how big were you at that time? Because it doesn't sound like the, the staff was out of control. Well, here's the problem. As soon as you get a little bit ahead, you know, you say, well, oh, look, we've got profits. And we go, well, wait a minute. Uh, we really need to hire another person. And so then you hire the other person. I mean, I can remember when we decided to incorporate and they said, well, you know, this means that the government's going to take 50% of your income. And we said, well, wait a minute, we don't have any real net income. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, you talk about scaling. Now we're talking about the cost of growing your business. Mm -hmm. For instance, if we opened a new territory, say like Florida, we realized that, you know, somebody had to go into the public stores, for instance, every week to make sure that our competition didn't take our signs down, turn our, our reorder tags upside down, or uh, move our products off the shelf, or you name it. Yeah. And not only that, that it was not in the back room, that it was on the shelf and it was for scale. It was, it was for sale and it was scanning properly. So we wanted to put a person in Florida, okay? So now you've got to give them a $40,000 base plus commissions and you have to pay for maybe $100,000 worth of expenses. Sure. So, so, so now that's just one state. So now how do you, how do you raise the funds to do that? So that was, that was our real challenge. And the, thing, the reason that Barefoot took 20 years and not five is probably because we were underfinanced. We used cash flow. But the fact is that even if we were financed, we would have made so many mistakes with that money, because we did anyway, mm -hmm. that we would have probably had to go back for more and wound up losing control of our company. Mm -hmm. So in a way, the fact that it took longer and that we had to do the dirty work ourselves. I mean, the wine business, nobody talks about the dirty work. Nobody says, you got to get out there and price your own bottles in Poughkeepsie, mm -hmm. you know, in yeah. some store. They don't say that. They they act like, oh, the distributor's going to do that or the retailer's going to do that. So in order for Barefoot to be a success, we had to overpower the laziness of the distribution system. Mm -hmm. And we also had to show them that a new product, which didn't have a history of making money for them, was going to make money for them. So we had to put guys in every major market and gals who did just that. Yeah. And as we like to say, it's really hard to put money into somebody's back pocket when they're swinging for your nose. And, you know, interestingly enough, Mary, you actually have some experience in the earlier days, right, of, of getting yeah. barefoot on the map. What did you do? It was probably in 2005, 6, 7 range. I can't recall. 
but I worked for a PR company out in New York, and they would send me to do morning shows with five to six products, and mm-hmm. Barefoot Bubbly was one of my clients that mm-hmm. I worked for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was well, that's gorilla. Yeah, that was that was when we could afford to hire people like you, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I mean it's it's and it's a great story, and and I think if I'm reading between the lines here, Michael, what you're saying is is you, I mean, it's a double edged sword. You could have taken in the money, but if you taken in the money, you probably would have blown it. It would not have been a good use of your, of funds, and you would have had to carve off a lot of equity. But in order to grow, you actually did it internally and grew organically through through cash flow as you were as you were creating it. So, were you always uh, operating at break even or a bit in the red, or were you operating in the black? Were you throwing off dividends? Was there was it were you making money? Were you was there cash to you and Bonnie? Well, let's put it this way: um, we tried to buy a house. And the bank said, "Oh no, you guys, you guys can't buy a house. You're self-employed. You know, you have unstate. You're not stable." Mm-hmm. And uh, we said, "Well, what about the four employees we have, who we figured out, filled out forms for that you gave them house loans?" Mm-hmm. And they said, "Well, that's different. They have a good, solid job." Jeez. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. so this is kind of the problem that we had. So they said, "You know what you have to do? You have to incorporate and pay yourself a salary." So you got to make it real. So, you got to make it legit. So we, so, to speak. so we incorporated and we paid ourselves a salary, mm-hmm. and, um, and and you know we did get the house after a couple of years. Um, our employees had houses, but we didn't. Mm-hmm. And so then we, you know, uh, but when you start talking about scaling, um, you you really you're really talking about why would a chain store take you? Now, the reason the distributor takes you is because the chain store wants you and the distributor wants a piece of that action. Mm-hmm. And if the if the chain store has stores in the distributor's territory, the, the distributor's very happy to take that business. Yeah, it's, in the, fact, easiest, will, it's the easiest game in the world. I mean, the, the, yeah, the, if the retailer says, I want it, then the wholesaler says, great, I'll take it, I'll bring it in, I'll get my cut. <laughs> right, yeah. and, and, and we would easy. even take it, we'd even take it further and ask Ask the retailer, what distributor would you like to buy this from? Oh, wow. Yeah. Then we go back to the distributor and say, you know, so-and-so over there, you know, at, at Food Lion uh, in South Carolina would like to buy it from you. Mm-hmm. And so so this is all stuff we learned, I mean, yeah. a, about about scaling. And and so now here we are. We're, we're we also we also tell our clients today about scaling, and this is a mistake we made. We we got too too big too fast, and we had a hard time supporting our sales. We had out of stocks. We had problems in the distribution system, and what we learned is that we should have started small and learned what kinds of things we really had to do to keep it on the shelf in a small area and then get our act together before we took our show on the road because there's so much pressure to just scale fast and fail fast. Well, how about scaling slow and not failing at all? Yeah. Yeah. Points well taken. And, and, you know, it seems like glamour on paper, so to speak, but even at a hundred thousand cases, if you're, if you're retailing at five ninety nine, you're probably getting two bucks a bottle. I mean, so we're only oh, yeah. talking, we're only talking about a couple million bucks gross that yeah, you then that get. Time. Yeah, at that time. So, and then you've got to pay all your people and, and and distribution and everything else. 
So when you come right down to it, 100,000 cases, it seems like a lot. But when you're at a five-odd dollar price point, you're not exactly getting rich off of this thing. So why stay the course? Well, we actually thought about changing course a couple times. Mm -hmm. Uh, At one point, we said, well, let's do reserves. They'll respect that. We'll give them vintage-dated uh, you know, vineyard designated Russian River mm. Pinot Noir Sauvignon Blanc from the from uh, you know the the uh, Columbia Valley. the Alexander Valley. <laughs> yeah. uh, mm-hmm. You know, we'll give them Zinfandel from the Dry Creek Valley. You know, we'll really talk to the cork dorks, mm-hmm. and we did, and it was very profitable. And we only sold about ten thousand cases of that a year but it was very profitable Mm -hmm. another thing that happened you talk about timing is because we were buying wines in bulk in 1995 there was a wine drought and we had bought enough wine for us for a year or two but all of a sudden because of the wine drought the cost of wine really skyrocketed Mm. and everybody was desperate for it so we bought wines for like a dollar fifty a gallon which we sold for like five and six dollars a gallon. Mm-hmm. So things like that happened along the the journey that were just miraculous. Yeah. But they had to do with timing. And uh, they certainly helped the bottom line. There's no question. Yeah. So you so you stayed the course and you continued down the path, eventually reaching, as you said, about six hundred thousand cases. Did Gallo approach you? Did you was it a was a was was it a concerted, a concentrated, uh, intentional effort to sell? What what was how did that come about? Well, you have to remember, we thought we were going to sell in four years. You know how silly were we, right? Mm. Um, you can't sell it unless you have really uh, become an acquisition target. And so the question is, what is the number that you have to be at of cases per year? to be considered an acquisition target at the 599 price point in the wine business. Yeah. And the answer is 500,000 cases, a half a million cases. Jeez. So you you know as much as we wanted to sell it, we couldn't sell it. Mm-hmm. So we were we were kind of sucked into the business and couldn't get out of the business until it got to a certain number. We knew that we wanted to be acquired by a company that would continue the name and would not destroy the brand. Mm-hmm. We knew that we wanted to be acquired by a company that was hands-on with regard to distribution management and uh, merchandising. In other words, keeping it on the shelf. Um, it sounds it sounds simple to say, <laughs> yeah. but it's very difficult. Um, and, you know, there was only one one company out there that made that that commitment that mm-hmm. we saw it was a it was a closely held family company and so we knew that their five year plan was going to last five years we it wasn't going to be a new five year plan every 90 days to sell stock so yeah. we had some respect for this company and so the question was how do you get your peanut in front of the elephant right And so we had to really strategize about how we were going to get their attention, how we were going to impress them, and, you know, what we were going to do about it. Mm -hmm. And so we deliberately decided 
to place our wines in four or five distributors across the nation that we knew they had their products in, mm -hmm. in the hope, and yes, there was a risk, in the hope that somebody in that company would say to them, hey, this is on fire. You guys should buy it before somebody else does. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, smart. And so, yeah. And then the other thing, too, is, you know, if you listen to the brokers, they'll tell you, oh, well, start an auction. It goes off to the highest bidder. That's really not right. What you really want is more of a silent auction. You want to give the person that you're interested in acquiring from you all their due diligence done for them in advance. So the due diligence period is very short. Mm -hmm. You do not want to get Mr. Big knocking on your door and saying, oh, I think I've got those documents around here somewhere mm -hmm. because those larger companies are run pretty much by their attorneys and well, they should be. Yeah. There's too much liability involved. And so they want to sign off on your logo from the original artist. Mm -hmm. Did you get one? Well, no, we paid her $25 an hour. Uh-huh. Well, we'll wait and try to stay interested while you go get it. Well, I don't think so. So we had all that stuff. Yeah. And luckily, luckily, um, we had a very good broker. He was 75 years old. The guy really understood what was involved. And he said, you guys have got to collect all this stuff before we even talk to anybody. Mm -hmm. yeah, so we put smart. a stack of documents together. It must have been five inches high. Mm. And it was it was it was organized in groups. There was a group for their legal department, a group for their management department, a group for their marketing department, a group for their production department, mm -hmm. and you know, everybody else. Yeah. And and so that way they could execute a quick uh, decision. But basically, when you present somebody with something like that, you're not saying it, but your actions imply that you could present this to someone else. Sure. You know, and, and it's interesting, too, because when, when you come right down to it again, just given the price point and doing some quick math here at 600,000 cases, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking you're probably ended up somewhere in the neck of the woods of around 13 to 15 million uh, in terms of gross. Is that about where you were at uh, at that point? No, no, we were also selling reserves reserve oh, okay. wines. Okay. Okay. All right. And not only that, and not only that, uh, uh, by that time, we had achieved efficiencies of scale. Got it. So we were buying glass for about half of what we used to buy it for. Mm. You know, and we were also buying wines. We got really smart about how to buy wines and how to buy grapes and everything else. Mm hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, when when the exit happened, was it was it based on a multiple? Was it based on uh, EBITDA? Was it was it based on just uh, how how was that number finally determined? I can't I can't tell you because I'm under an NDA on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you were to value a company now, how would you value a company? Because I know you're doing other things. You've had a chance to exit. Would you do it based on uh, on multiple or based on EBITDA? How how would you value a company now? Well, first of all, I wouldn't be, uh, I, I wouldn't look at it just in, in terms of EBITDA or, uh, or, or volume. I would look at it in terms of its uh, strategic value to my company and uh, conversely, the strategic value to my competition. I would consider things like what markets are they in? Mm -hmm. Well, how fast are they growing in those markets? Uh, you know, who are their customers and what is the size of that market? You know, is, is that something that we can really blow up? Uh, let's take a look at their costs of goods. 
Now, with our size, can we reduce those costs of goods and make this a whole lot more profitable? Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of questions that would add value for me. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. And so congrats on that exit and being able to move forward. And you've got the barefoot spirit, how hardship, hustle and heart built America's number one wine brand. Definitely a great read. Definitely encourage folks to, to check that out as well. So you, you said you're also running a $10 million plus business now. What, what is that business? Well, right now I'm working with about five or six clients who are doing what we did. They have come up with a solution. Some of it is in tech. Some of it is in hardware. And they are trying to build their businesses up to the point where they become an acquisition target. And we're able to help them by telling them, hey, do this, don't do that, you know, um, based on our own, you know, hard knocks lessons. You know, if, if it costs you $200,000 to make a mistake, you don't let your client make that same mistake. Mm -hmm. And so then these companies, we have like a cohort every year of maybe four to seven clients at the most. And every year, one of them sells. Yeah. Now, the way we work, we don't work for these people unless their business is scalable, unless they're coachable, unless they have a real value in the marketplace. Yeah. And several other several other things that are important to us. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And and every once in a while, you know, one of them sells. Yeah. Yeah. And no, so I totally get that. So. So, uh, you know, we don't work for them you know, unless we get a percentage of their value. Mm -hmm. So our typical uh, deal, you might say, is we want so much a month to advise you, and then we'll take a percentage of your brand value if and when you sell. So now they know that we're in it for the long haul. They mm -hmm. know that we're not really going to get paid big time unless they sell. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds... Really valuable, I'm sure, to to those folks who are taking you up on that. And let, let me just ask you this final question here. I mean, you seem to have had a pretty storied career and uh, have a lot of interesting things going on now as well. What uh, what, what what still keeps you up at night? What, uh, what any anything you still worry about in these uh, in these days? Well, I'm really excited about what's going on uh, with green uh, technology. Mm. Uh, I'm excited with the fact that there's software that can take an old building that was that's 60 years old and reduce their energy bill by 25 percent. Mm -hmm. I'm excited that there are uh, products out there that can take garbage, including plastic, and turn them into electricity. Mm -hmm. You know, what is the value of that? What's the demand for that? You know, got garbage, need electricity, sale made. So those are the kinds of things that keep me up at night. I get really excited about uh, the way that industry is going right now. People are starting to get the message. These young people that are coming up, they've got fantastic ideas. Where they need help is they need help in soft skills. They need help in negotiation. They need help in just plain business uh, sense, you know, what to do first, second, and third priorities, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's exciting to be uh, a person, you know, with my experience at my age, you know, having done it and be able to be active and help others. It's yeah. very exciting. 
Love it. All right, Michael Houlihan, we're going to let you jump, man. We know how busy you are and uh, definitely appreciate you being here on Beyond Eight Figures. Run out, grab a copy of The Barefoot Spirit, Michael and Bonnie's book. It talks uh, about how hardship, hustle, and heart built America's number one wine brand. Michael, thanks for being on Beyond Eight Figures. Appreciate you. It was a pleasure. All right, my friend. So, yeah, one, once again, Mary Goulet. And it's funny because, you you know, you knew this brand a number of years ago. And so yeah. you had seen it. And I think he said, if I heard him correctly, didn't he say this was from the 80s? 84, it, I yeah. think. Yeah. So, um, it's... It, what, that was a long haul. That's a long but haul. Worthwhile. There's that, what's the expression about, you know, a, a lot more can happen in... 10 years than than you ever thought and you know a lot less happens in a year than you hope right like it's it's one of those old expressions that i'm completely butchering here but needless to say that's uh that's what we're talking about here i mean it's you know 30 well 25 odd year haul really it's a long time to go from point a to point b and in the way things are today well and they were they had no mentors really didn't sound like it. You know, the distributors wouldn't even work with them. Yeah, and and they never brought in any outside capital. So so it, it kind of begs the question. I mean, you keep 100% of the company. And yeah. what, so what did, uh, was it Judy who said it on uh, on reinventing funding on reinvention radio? What, what she said, do you want to be king or do you want to make money? Make money. Right? I mean, and it's and it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. But at the same token, having been on the other side, of things where I've cut off a big piece of the pie and things don't necessarily go to plan. Well, where would you be if you had control? So, you know, it's, it's an interesting conversation. I don't know. Just got to keep learning from these awesome guests. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and we will continue to bring you awesome entrepreneurs who join us from across the globe. People who have either exited for more than $10 million or, run businesses that currently gross more than $10 million annually. And we've got a heck of a lineup of folks coming to join us here on Beyond Eight Figures uh, over the next couple of months. If you haven't heard any of the back episodes, uh, make sure you check those out because we've got some great ones with, oh, my God, Roland Frazier and Reed Tracy and Onyx Singal and, uh, I mean, just so many awesome episodes in the in the, in the the early days there, which doesn't seem like, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we had no. the early days. But uh, make sure you check out some of the early episodes as well. From Mary Goulet and White Wade and Richie O'Tay will be back next week. I'm Steve Olsher, and we'll talk to you next time here on Beyond Eight Figures. Take care, everybody.